Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a channel within the New Books Network. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today on the program, we have Dr. Thomas A. Foster, an Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs and Professor of History at Howard University. Dr. Foster is here to discuss his new book, published by our friends at the University of Georgia Press, entitled Rethinking Rufus, Sexual Violations of Enslaved Men. In the spirit of transparency and care for our listeners, the subject matter involved in today's discussion of Rethinking Rufus may, for some, be triggering, so just want to put that out there. But with that said, thank you for coming on the program today, Dr. Foster. How are you? I'm great. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. Most definitely. And so uh, can b- before we get you know too knee-deep in the book, can you talk to us how you got to this particular project? Uh, sure. The project um, started out initially as an article. Um, that I started almost 10 years ago, actually. Um, and the impetus for that article came from teaching a uh, history of sexuality in undergraduate classes at DePaul University, where we would study um, sexual exploitation of enslaved women and had um, really nothing to work with in terms of scholarship or even primary sources for the students to Uh, study or even discuss the possibility of sexual exploitation of enslaved men. And um, uh, the more I taught that class and the more I worked with those documents, I began to see in the documents um, perhaps another story. And I just became really curious about exploring that story. Um, And that uh, became sort of um, just that initial article, which I can say more about um, later if you'd like. But that's, that's sort of the initial start for the project. Awesome. And um, as well with that, you know, I'm very much interested to know how scholars and and, and such, because, you know, we have a, a differing um, audience of folks. We have some folks who are, who are scholars themselves, like some people like my mom, who are real interested to know what are all the books that her son, are, you know, is reading in, in school. So can you lay out um, maybe some of the intellectual communities that help to nurture uh, Rethinking Rufus? Uh, Let's see. Um, My background is actually in women's history originally, and then I moved into the history of sexuality, focusing specifically on men and manhood in the 18th century in British America, 
for my first book. So I had been immersed in, um, say, the history of sexuality in 17th, 18th century America for quite a while, for a number of projects before I started this project on slavery. Um, and so I think I came to the study from a slightly different avenue than some of the scholars that I eventually corresponded with and um, interacted with on conference panels and other discussions um, in that they were typically scholars of slavery and I had not been a scholar of slavery. Um, and so I was bringing uh, my background in the history of gender and sexuality to primary sources in slavery um, and had to sort of, you know, re-educate myself to study up on a secondary sources on slavery to have the context and background that I needed to work with those sources. Uh, I think the background in the history of sexuality and gender um, certainly gave me a different approach to the sources and that I was looking for different connections between sexuality and gender, particularly for men and manhood. And I was also perhaps more sensitive or aware to manhood and masculinity um, in a way that perhaps other scholars are not, if they're not sort of immersed in that literature. Yeah, and and I and I say that and and I said in part because um, previously I had um, doctors uh, Dinah Remy Berry and and Doctor Harris uh, Leslie Harris that is um, on the program in uh, I guess it would have been late December for their uh, edited volume uh, Sexuality and Slavery and that's actually how I came across your book as well um, it, because you had a contribution which was a uh, chapter seven. The sexual abuse of black men under American slavery, and and, and they reference the fact that you were um, uh, that you had an up uh, upcoming book in 2019, and so it's interesting because those scholars are in part very close to your book um, as well. Can you talk a, a bit about that connection before as well? Yeah, it's a vital connection for the book. I don't know that the book would exist really without Dr. Barry's um, encouragement. Um, and support um, and sort of recognition of the significance of the work. And so um, for me, I was I wanted to do the article to make the initial point um, that, in fact, I thought many of the sources that we had in front of us, in fact, sources that many people had already published and written about from the vantage point of enslaved women in those sources. Um, I thought many of those same sources um, needed to be looked at because they also told us things about enslaved men's experiences with regards to sexual violations. And so the article for me was satisfying in terms of sketching out broadly what I saw in the documents and in the sources. Uh, I had the intention of perhaps writing another article. I really wasn't sure, but I was going to continue reading through sources and exploring different topics. Um, so I thought perhaps I had two articles here, maybe three, um, and pretty early on um, connected with the group of scholars that formed that edited volume that you referenced on sexuality and slavery. And there were two different conferences actually that came um, along the way as part of putting that volume together. So there was a really um, rich environment with a number of really dynamic scholars that were looking at sexuality and slavery. And I was able to, even though I did not have original research and they all did, I just had the article. I was able to join that group because um, it filled a void in the work that was being done at the time that they were putting together that volume. So they, they definitely wanted the article. So that chapter is actually a reprint of the original, I think it's a 2011 article. 
whereas the other pieces I think are, are all original um, work to that volume. So um, the response to the article and the discussions that happened um, in putting together that volume with that, that community that formed um, really led me to want to push this um, to make it a book, um, to make um, really sort of fully explore it and and see what um, could come out that way. So, yeah, and and um and and we're all the better for it as as a scholar and, and and lay people alike. And um, so 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 now that we've talked about you know more of the intellectual communities that helped uh, to nurture this, and also that you know this is greatly a part of uh, UGA's um uh, sexual uh, gender and slavery uh series uh, headed by uh, Dr. Jennifer Morgan at. NYU and, and Dr. Diana Ramey Berry, I believe, as as well part of the project at um, UT Austin. Um, can you as well, you know, talk about your title? So, you know, rethinking Rufus. Who, you know, who who was Rufus, and and why was he so integral to your study? So that title actually came late to the project. Um, initially. I was exploring titles that used the word rape, um, the rape of Rufus or the rape of Rufus question mark. Um, was, uh, there were a few conference papers that carried that title. With that feedback, I became increasingly uncomfortable using the word rape in the title. It seemed a bit um, perhaps sensational or exploitive. And so I went back to really the original impetus for the project, which, as I mentioned, was uh, that history of sexuality class at DePaul University. And the document actually that was at the core of that was an interview with Rose Williams, a woman who was enslaved in Texas and did an interview with the WPA in the early 20th century, where she talked about her experiences being forced um, to um, reproduce and set up a household with a man named Rufus. He doesn't have a last name in her interview. We don't have an interview with him. In fact, we have no documents um, from him. Um, but I thought that what we could do to sort of frame the study was use her interview to try to tease out and read between the lines um, what might have been his experiences. And I, I wanted to humanize the story. So I, I knew that I wanted um, very much to highlight the voices of enslaved people, specifically enslaved men. And, um, and so I was very drawn to the idea of framing the book around a particular individual to further um, ground the story and further humanize it. Um, and so, so I ended up with rethinking Rufus. It really probably should be thinking Rufus in that we were not thinking about Rufus um, for the most part when we read the document about Rose Williams. I, I include myself in that. I taught that document several times in classes and never mentioned anything about Rufus's experiences. Um, and in the end, I went with rethinking Rufus because, in fact, what had been happening, and I saw this at least in my classes, is the absence of information about enslaved men possible sexual violations, ended up being filled in by my students with an assertion that men were not sexually violated. So more than once I heard students say, as a preface to a question, we know enslaved men weren't sexually violated, but X or but Y. And then they'd continue with their question. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting formulation. And it seemed actually pretty in keeping with what we do in general with histories. If, it's, if it hasn't been written about or studied uh, I think there's a tendency to assume it didn't happen um, rather than just sort of holding an uncomfortable question mark, if you will, or an uncomfortable silence in that record, in that knowledge. And so for me, rethinking Rufus really fit um, because, in fact, my students had been thinking Rufus, right? They'd been thinking about Rufus um, in 
uninformed or at least unsupported ways, I should say, by the, the documents. Uh, and so that was uh, where Rethinking Rufus came from. Second part of the title, if I'm not going on too long for you here, um, <laughs> also took um, a lot of um, a lot of thought um, and a lot of wrestling with sort of word choice here. And the fact that there's a lot of wrestling with word choice for me spoke to the fact that we really don't have language to talk about uh, sexual violations of enslaved men or sexual violations of men really um, even today, I would say. And so we just don't really have the vocabulary there. Um, I went in the end with sexual violations rather than sexual violence because I thought sexual violence had um, perhaps a little too much contemporary currency. Um, and so there's always sort of loaded assumptions around that. So I wanted to unsettle that just a little bit um, by changing it to violations. And uh, that's how the title came to be. Right. And, and for me, I, I, you know, right on, I, I've really been thinking about, um, as I've been doing my own work too, thinking about kind of the assumptions that folks have when they come into projects and, and, and thinking about what, what it particularly is about something like, you know, something like sexual violation. Because I also noticed very early on while reading your book that, you know, you made it a point to say sexual violation as opposed to, you know, another term like, you know, sexual uh, violence or, or, or rape. And, and and so that was something that I noticed very, very early in your work. Um, but then also uh, it made me think about disciplinary um, constructions as well. And so would you consider this book to be right something that would be more so interdisciplinary than simply maybe not simply might not be the word but as opposed to just a, a book of history i think it's pretty in keeping with the approach i've taken from the beginning of my career in that a lot of my interpretation of documents is in is informed at least or the the conceptualization of the project is very much informed by gender studies, um, the history of sexuality, other interdisciplinary um, fields. But I, I think that I'm also a very traditional historian at the same time. Um, and so for me, that means being cautious about claims about limited source bases. Um, and one thing I try uh, very hard to do in the project is to link up um, limited sources. But if if you find uh, a similar comment in one place in time, um, and you find it in another place in time, and you find it sort of in a whole host of different uh, types of documents, um, different locations, different contexts, um, there's a way in which that sort of accrues to say, at least ultimately what I conclude, and that is that sexual violence is endemic to slavery. Um, and that, of course, uh, there's going to be all sorts of different ways in which that uh, is practiced or realizes itself in different times and places. Uh, and honestly, I hope that the book is really the first word on this, at least in a monograph form, um, rather than I had never intended this to be the last word on it, uh, certainly not. And so the hope is that other scholars will pick up um, and perhaps uh, give more depth, more change over time, more um, contextual differences in their own work, I would hope. 
Right. And, and, and I definitely think at least based upon uh, the Twitter conversations, which, you know, I, I think both of us have been uh, very much attuned to uh, a lot of folks across varying disciplines, uh, including history, obviously, as well, have been really uh, not only excited about the book right before it came out, but upon receiving and, and reading the actual book, I think a lot of us have uh, really I, I think personally been challenged by your by your book um, in 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 kind of like pushing our p- potential assumptions about you know how men how enslaved men were sexually violated and um so 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 that actually brings me to think as a, as the actual person writing the book what challenges did this book provide you. Well, any project presents a whole host of challenges. Um, this one in particular for me, um, because of the topic, there were a number of things that I, I wrestled with early on. Uh, those tended to dissipate once I resettled and resolved a few things for me about approach um, and what I wanted the book to do. Uh, and so early on, there were all sorts of questions that I had um, for myself in terms of how I wanted to speak to readers, um, how I wanted uh, the historical documents to be presented, how I wanted to craft the the story. And so I knew that I wanted to highlight the voices of enslaved people. Um, I knew that I wanted to spend um, little to no time exploring um, the mindset of enslavers. I I was not interested um, in having... um, you know, you could imagine another book, perhaps that's a truly full story that talks about the um, victimizers, the victims, um, the whole um, gamut. Basically, I felt like because this was the first um, monograph on the subject, and and because there was a need to actually have enslaved men um, and women talking about this, um, that I wanted to highlight those sources. And so in at least one chapter, the WPA narratives figure very heavily. Um, but in most of the chapters, um, the source base is um, majority produced by enslaved or formerly enslaved people. And so that would be um, narratives or biographies, um, memoirs, and different things like that. And so this is just one example of one of the challenges I had, and that's just in terms of how I wanted to frame the study. And so you'll notice in the book, you do not see a lot about um, enslavers or people talking about um, justifying to themselves or explaining why they um, do what they do. That was not something that I felt needed to be um, explored in this project. And and also to the point of organization, um, how did you how did you make how how did you construct the text in the sense of you know you did not go like chronologically right and th- this project wasn't really you know pushed towards that particular bend so how did you uh, choose as the scholar writing the book how did you choose to really craft the book as far as how to divide the particular book up because i always find you know especially as someone who's very much used to the chronological order of things when it comes to writing history that when I see scholars who don't use that approach, I'm always fascinated to see how do they choose the organizational structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I know um, historians um, and, and readers approaching history um, have a different um, 
uh, a different interest basically in change over time or or not. And so I've never been a real um, history is the study of change over time type of type of historian. And I know there's a ton of historians out there that are horrified um, to hear me say that. But um, particularly for this project, um, to argue that at it at at a base point, I was trying to establish that enslaved men were sexually violated in a whole range of ways because of enslavement. And so um, change over time is something I hope that other scholars may do something with if they can um, you know, have enough sources, a rich enough uh, source base to get, to get at that. Uh, for me, like I said, I had never um, started this as an actual book, so I didn't have a book proposal with six proposed chapters um, as you know, historians typically do, and then pursue it that way. It, it grew very organically um, initially as the article, which I then thought formed a decent model for the book, which was um, topically. And then um, as I started to explore the possibility of developing this into a book or at least a handful of articles, I really just spent a lot of time reading through the available sources, um, all of the sort of traditional sources that people use to study slavery. Uh, and to see what topics came out of those sources ultimately. And that's what organized the book. For me, the sources really spoke to me in terms of how I wanted to organize the project. And with that too, um, one of the chapters, all right, I, I, you know, I, I love the entire book, right? We mentioned online offline, you know, this is going to definitely be a, a book on my comps list. Hey, Dr. Dunbar. <laughs> and so, um, for, you know, for going forward at Rutgers, um, but the chapter that really uh, uh, was the most like awe striking, I would say, would, would have, was actually your final chapter, um, which is entitled for those who don't have the book presently, um, Till I Had Mastered Every Part. Ballet's vulnerability and same gender relations under slavery. Um, you, you know, I, I thought that that chapter was the most striking in part because, um, you know, the question of masculinity is always something that is uh, undergirding um, just a lot of conversations, just generally, because I just don't think a lot of people have a lot of true understanding of gender and of, you know, sex and of, you know, the particular terms that you as a scholar of gender would know. So um, can you talk a bit about uh, that particular chapter? Because we're not going to talk about all of them, but just that one was one that really as the, as the, as the host, uh, you know, I guess the host privilege, I guess, um, just for just asking about that particular uh, chapter, if you don't mind. Um, sure. And actually one of the things that's, that's, um, that that chapter is a good example of, um, going back to the question about challenges, uh, is um, that I wanted to have the book not only talk about violations, but also talk about, um, to put it in a particular context for what was being violated at the time, to historically context, contextualize the violations, and, and rather than impose uh, current assessment of what is a, a violation, if, if you will. And so you see that in a couple of other chapters. You see that um, in this case, in that last chapter, it operates in the same chapter where you've got a section that talks about um, the custom, the practice, the accepted notion of bonds between enslaved men, bonds of love, bonds of tenderness, bonds of intimacy, 
um, that that existed. And so you have that to, to then talk about what is being violated in that time period when there are same gender violations of enslaved men. Um, in the rest of the book, in another part of the book, it's actually in two different chapters where you see that sort of juxtaposition um, in that you've got the chapter on um, which highlights enslaved men's voices talking about uh, the way that they pride themselves in selecting spouses, in risking punishment uh, for selecting loved ones, um, and resent being broken up from um, chosen lovers or partners. Um, and you have that in contrast to the chapter on uh, coerced reproduction also to talk about exactly what is being violated there. And that is a norm at the time uh, that enslaved men embraced and nurtured and established really for themselves of um, autonomy over selecting a spouse. And so I just wanted to say that um, uh, it's one of the first things I think of when I think of that chapter in that I... I don't think most people would have expected that chapter to also have a component of love. I don't think people would expect the book to have components of love um, and um, resistance uh, in the book, um, particularly from the title and particularly from people who are triggered by the topic and will stay away from the book. Um, I don't think the the framing um, perhaps does justice to the richness, I think, of the the story. And that was something that I really wanted to um, communicate. On the one hand, I wanted to communicate and took pains in the introduction to be very explicit that this is not a history of sexuality for enslaved men. Um, this is a particular focus on sexual violations of enslaved men. I did not want to contribute to um, a pathologizing of enslaved men's sexuality um, or even say that these violations are at the core or drive understandings of sexuality. This in no way has um, a broader understanding of the history of sexuality here been. Um, broached, I wouldn't want to see this book as doing justice to the history of sexuality for enslaved men. So it's a component of that. Um, and one component of that is this chapter on same gender violations. There's not a great deal of work out there on um, uh, bonds of intimacy among enslaved men. There's emerging work um, uh, in the area, so I'm happy to contribute to those discussions. Uh, and there's certainly a lot of contemporary discussions about sexual violations of enslaved men that are um, same gender. Um, that I think finds its way into the popular culture in ways that I'm quite uncomfortable with. And I do in the introduction to that chapter talk about the fact that uh, I think there's some um, homophobia or uncomfortableness with same gender love today um, that uses those particular violations, which happened, um, as a way to symbolize the ultimate depravity um, of slavery, if you will. And I think that's quite problematic. Um, and in fact, um, I've been in discussions before where people will bring up um, buck breaking, which is not figure in the book, um, which I have not been able to find um, documentation for. Um, and I'm very curious to, to actually um, connect with people who have studied this. I'd love to see original documents. Um, to understand where that comes from. Um, my understanding is that the argument is basically that that is so heinous um, that it is um, the way that individuals would uh, break down an enslaved man um, by penetrating him sexually um, or humiliating him in a same gender sexual violation. Um, but I think one of the things that the book shows is that for enslaved men, I mean, the ultimate violation is being ripped from your wife and children. Um, or being uh, forced to 
have a particular um, partner um, and reproduce. And you see that um, very clearly in their writings and their complaints about those violations. And so I did not see um, any of the same writing or complaints about same gender violations in that way. And so that is why I'm very suspicious of sort of how that gets crafted, if you will, uh, and, and where I'm suspicious about trying to disentangle our own contemporary discomfort with same gender love from uh, the time period itself. But I don't know if I've hit any of your questions or interest in that chapter, so you may want to ask more questions about it if you if you want. Oh, no, like you, you actually did touch on them uh, greatly because actually uh, in part why I asked that. So earlier today um, when I was working, uh, I always like to have something uh, in the background uh, to listen to. And um, I came across actually a uh, discussion at the second annual uh, Malcolm X Day uh, Symposium at Uncle Bobby's bookstore um, in uh, Philadelphia. And so um, the the topic actually was uh, Malcolm X and the politics of masculinity. And um, for, for those who uh, may know, um, the, the late great uh, Manning Marable uh, wrote that pioneering uh, biography of Malcolm X. And uh, in the book, he talks about, um, you know, uh, Malcolm X engaging um, in, in same gender uh, sex. And so um, that was something that a lot of people, you know, push against. And they'll always ask, you know, what, what, what sources are you using this and this? Um, and it actually, I think, goes to what you're talking about when it comes to uh, the, the, the under, I wouldn't even say it's underground, but, it, it, you know, homophobia uh, um, uh, just generally. And so uh, that's how you touching on the topic in the way that you, or that chapter rather, uh, when you, uh, the way you did to me, at least anyway, uh, broached all of the, the particular areas that I was thinking about. Um, and, and, and actually a follow-up question to that too, because I know you had mentioned, uh, just then about the, the buck breaking and yes, I've heard that if you go on certain areas of Facebook or Twitter, you'll find that. And it's a pretty, uh, gross place to be at. Um, but one thing that they, uh, some folks will talk about uh, were the role of white women in the sexual violation of uh, enslaved men. Um, and, and so with that, could you talk to us a bit about what your research found on that particular topic? Yeah, I think that's perhaps the most speculative of the chapters um, in that uh, one of the things I want to do in that chapter is at least get people thinking about the fact that we have a wide occurrence that's documented and known, and scholars have not um, certainly scholars have been aware of this for quite a while of uh, white women and enslaved men um, in relationships. Um, the scholars that have focused on those relationships have primarily been uh, women's historians, and they primarily talk about what it means for those white women in those relationships. Uh, and um, as someone who um, studied women's history and is committed to women's history, I, I appreciate uh, that perspective. I appreciate the recognition of the ways in which those white women are um, going against a patriarchal um, system defining their lives, that in many ways they are making their own choices. But I think what fell out of those discussions entirely is uh, what it would have meant for these enslaved men. Um, the power imbalance in those relationships. And for me, it was incredibly jarring uh, coming from the history of sexuality and um, being fully aware of how we approach the histories that talk about relationships between white men and enslaved black women, 
uh, as exploitive. Uh, I mean, depending on which scholar you talk to, either all of them are raped or they are various, you know, degrees of exploitation and violation. So uh, I was really struck by the fact that on the one hand, when you look at enslaved men with white women, you have uh, almost this, I mean, to be a little bit flip, it's almost a characterization of love across the color line, even in, people will talk about this even in the 17th and 18th centuries. And on the other hand, you have um, rape in all cases because the person is in, one person is enslaved, one person is free. And so I wanted to make that point in that chapter. Um, I begin by at least um, showing us, you know, laying all that out. Ultimately, I've got a few um, suggestive instances. One case in particular where um, a it's in uh, Kentucky in the 1840s, I believe, where a white woman and an enslaved man had a household. Um, ultimately, the courts have to determine. Um, who owns that property. And uh, so there is testimony um, from, I think it's three different neighbors actually that testified to the same dynamic in that relationship. Um, and the quote from a couple of them is something along the lines of whenever they fought, um, she threatened to sell him unless he behaved. Uh, and this was uh, considered to be a marriage or a relationship. And so I thought, well, that's a, that is, a, you know, it's one quote. It's very difficult to characterize a relationship based on just one quote. But um, it certainly was a tantalizing clue to a self-consciousness about the power imbalance in that relationship. Um, and I wanted, um, as scholars, for us to approach those relationships in a different way. Uh, and so, again, I hope that that chapter... Um, sort of sparks more research um, with that perspective in mind uh, and finds more evidence. It was extremely hard for me to get at the dynamic within those relationships, and it's not entirely surprising. Um, it's, it's uh, I mean, as we all know today, uh, interpersonal relationships are extremely complex. Um, it would be pretty troubling for any, you know, one or two emails of our own to be ripped out of context and have a person generalize about our personal relationships based on that that day's communication right but um i certainly found that quote um telling um and i do think that as scholars we need to keep in mind that power imbalance particularly because we know uh that white women were um violent were um seen you know saw themselves as key players in enslavement um were um, fully involved um as um you know new work is showing um in great detail um, Stephanie Jones Rogers' um, book that's out now is um, um, fantastic in that regard and really showing us that there's a whole other story that had not been considered um, and is really a corrective to a literature that was established by early women's historians who were, again, um, you know, focusing on the experiences of those um, white women um, in a way that was, you know, uh, quite a narrow um, a narrow focus. Um, but again, to put that in its own context, it was it was coming out of um, a body of literature that focused on enslaved men and gave no regard, not enslaved men, uh, free men, um, male masters and, and enslavers, and gave no regard to the experiences of um, white women at that time. And so, you know, there's a progression here um, for people who are interested in historiography that you can see. Um, and I'm glad to see we're now at a point where we're getting a much fuller um, story that is told. Most definitely. And uh, part of the reason why I also, uh, you know, asked that question, too, is I had uh, Dr. Stephanie Jones Rogers on a few months ago about uh, about her her book on uh, on white women as well. And so, um, you know, in the in the short couple minutes that we have left, um, can you talk to us a bit about 
Um, now that the project is over, looking back, what did you, if at all, learn? You know, what, what was the thing that you would say coming out of this project you learned the most about um, the, the sexual violation of enslaved men? And that's a great question. It's such an obvious question. I should have been prepared for it, but this is the first podcast I've done on the book. So um, All right. <laughs> I need to think about this. Um, honestly, I think throughout the project, uh, I was surprised at how much was there. You know, again, I had not intended for this to be a book, it, partly because I wasn't sure how much of this was documented. I felt pretty satisfied by the article that I had found what shards of evidence exist to help us begin to imagine uh, what was going on at the time. I didn't know that I'd be able to find enough to do a book and, you know, that I did not find untapped sources that were in someone's attic or basement or hidden in some archive somewhere. I used sources that everyone, you know, they've been using the same sources for so long that I found, I think that was perhaps most, um, interesting to me that that the sources were there, that people were talking about sexual violations, and that in so many different types of sources and so many different contexts, you could see this. So I I think that's one of the things when I look at the book, you know, I come away um, still um, overwhelmed, I think, by the variety of sources, the variety of, um, unfortunately, of violations, um, contexts, um, and ways in which that was recorded for us. And and tubes, I, I I know I mentioned this uh, when we were getting ready for the for the interview. Um, you know, you're a scholar now that is uh, that is at uh, Howard, and so you know you're at a you know historically black college. Uh, you know, so, some would say the most preeminent one, um, and and you're also um, by virtue of that in an important scholarly community. Um, and so, you know, this is a part of the, uh, the, my, my HBCU feature series, uh, in part why I have you on right now. So can you, um, in the brief amount of time we have left, talk to, you know, what HBCUs on the side note for this space here, can you talk to us a bit about, um, what, what, what being at an HBCU, you know, come from now to, from DePaul previous, what, you know, what that means for you as, as a scholar doing this work and, and also thinking about, you know, scholarly communities to tap into as well. So I've been at Howard for a year and a half now. Um, it's been a fantastic experience. Um, I'm thrilled to be part of a welcoming community of scholars um, at a place that um, supports, nurtures, um, and develops uh, undergraduates, graduate students, faculty of color, predominantly African-American um, and Black. And um, so it's a it's a terrific place to be. The book was primarily written at, a, at DePaul University, which is a predominantly white institution. Um, and so, um, and I'm not in the classroom yet. I'm in an administrative position. And so I'm, I'm very excited um, to see uh, how the book is received at Howard. I'm scheduled to give a book talk at Howard in November. So I've got a ways to go. Um, the initial reception has been really quite um, positive. Uh, for the work. Um, and as I said, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I don't know that the history of sexuality has been explored at much as much at Howard as I explored it at DePaul. And so I'm pleased to be um, able to um, contribute that, I think, to the discussions here. Uh, but Howard's uh, a unique place, an important place, um, and a place that contributes not only to the community that's here, um, but it's really making a contribution uh, to the country uh, and the world, frankly. And you see Howard alum all over the world. 
Absolutely. You see them all up and through uh, Black Panther. That, that's for sure. Uh, among, yeah, among many other um, spaces, too. And so, uh, you know, thank you so much, Dr. Foster, for, for being with us today. And, um, you know, once again, folks, I've been on New Books in African-American Studies, a channel within the New Books Network, uh, to talk to Dr. Thomas A. Foster, who, as he just said, is an Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs and Professor of History at Howard University. And not only that, the Howard University as well. And I'm Adam McNeil, your host, a 2015 graduate of the History Department at Florida A&M University. Um, which was founded October 3rd of 1887, if you didn't already know. And so um, with that, folks, please subscribe to the podcast uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And, you, you know, usually I get mine from Apple Podcasts, but, you know, we're, we're all around, Stitcher and, and the like too. So please go subscribe where you get your podcasts, especially if you like the content. And uh, please rate us and review us uh, because we always love to see how we're doing as, as a community of hosts. And so until next time, folks, once again, I'm Adam McNeil, Florida A&M University graduate, Simmons College graduate, and soon to be a Rutgers University, New Brunswick, PhD student in history. Until next time, folks, again, over and out.